0: The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. It should go without saying, but let it be said, absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. However, the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney, policy professional, or strategic advisor for their needs. If you're interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes, we are back with another episode of the If Then podcast brought to you by If Then Ventures i am david e. kenna adams uh your uh, product strategy regulatory strategy podcast hosting strategy uh guide here and i'm very pleased to welcome to the pod uh the vice president at strategies 360 a public affairs and communications firm she was my former co-worker at ease and has held previous stops at sonder uber the aclu she's a public policy and government affairs expert and she once tried to tell me the chance the rapper's 2019 album the big day was good and not famously terrible. Welcome, Caitlin O'Neill, to the podcast. Caitlin, thanks for coming on the pod.
1: So glad to be here. Yes, that'll be a whole separate podcast episode for sure. I look forward to that. We all make mistakes.
0: Uh, my favorite fun fact about that um, album is that it was so bad that Chance got sued.
1: <laughs> I knew there would be a litigation tie in here somewhere.
0: Always, always. Okay, Caitlin, obviously we worked together for more than three years at Ease, and it was quite the journey, and to put it lightly, you know, sagas abounded. These sort of regulated industries are clearly where you thrive. I would love for you to be able to, just in general, talk to us about what a government affairs, public affairs, public policy, community affairs, (laughs) you know, I think this sector maybe has a branding problem because I never know what to call it. But uh, what what is this role? What do you all do?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear that there's a branding problem because we're we are intended to be messaging experts, right? So <laughs> let's see if I can get this right and be helpful here. You know, I think all of what you just named can fall under the umbrella of what we call public affairs. And if it feels confusing, it's really because the the concept of having this model in-house at companies, tech companies in particular, is very new. It was really developed for the first time at some of the startups that I've had the pleasure to work at. So back in the day, corporations used to have a government relations person who went and Rubbed elbows at campaign fundraisers and maybe did a little bit of like backroom lobbying. (laughs) But now, what businesses need, especially if they are brand new industries, is an in house campaign to essentially Mm -hmm. promote the candidate that is the company. Um, And if you're trying to impact legislation, you uh, need a few different functions. One is government affairs which is doing the relationship building with policymakers directly. One is community affairs, which is working with third party stakeholders to help echo your message. And then you have communications, which is working with the media. So ideally, they're all working under the same public affairs umbrella within the organization.
0: I love it. Finally, after years of working with you and the whole excellent team that we had at ease. Now I understand. All right. So within that umbrella of public affairs and all those other aspects that you just named, what is your specialty? Yeah.
1: So I I really like to think about this in the campaign that I just described, but my background really, especially in my in-house roles that you were just describing, has been um, leading government affairs teams, focusing on the aspect of the policymaker engagement. And for me, you know, I think uh, I'll quote Hamilton here, I like to be in the room where it happens. So that for me is the most, the most fun of all of this.
0: Quoting Hamilton in, in 2022. <laughs> it took until episode six of this podcast for it to happen. But, but yeah, you got to say it, you finally made it. Uh, what's, what's the day to day like, especially talking about the in-house version of of this role, being newer and coming about with these tech companies. What's your day-to-day like in government affairs?
1: So you can think about this, that we have two audiences as an in-house public policy person. One is the business team, the folks who are seeking to grow, the C-suite, the CEO, helping them understand what the political landscape is in the markets that they're looking to operate in, helping them understand how policy can be used as a tool for growth, maybe keeping an eye on new product features that may or may not end up being politically controversial moving forward. And then the other audience is the government itself. So we're sort of acting as translators by then taking our message to policymakers in the most compelling way possible in hopes of then seeing change that will impact the business in a positive way.
0: That makes a lot of sense. If I'm founding a company or working at an early stage company, when do I need to start thinking about public policy, government affairs, obviously to the extent it impacts my business directly, I need to be thinking about it, but when do I need someone in house to run these campaigns?
1: I think that if what you're doing at your business is new in any way, shape, or form, which hopefully it is because that's why you're seeking to start a business, it's very likely that public policy is not keeping up with what you are innovating on. So I always recommend engaging in public policy, whether it's in-house or with a consultant as early as possible. This comes from a lot of my experience working with companies where public policy was an afterthought, thus requiring a lot of cleanup, which is not something that you want as an ideal. The goal is to have a public policy strategy baked in early so that it can be a tool for growth and expansion instead of requiring you to constantly be on the defense once you've created that model.
0: Is super interesting you say that. And I feel like we could have a whole other episode that's just like a debate between the the go-ahead-and-break-things ethos and then cl- go clean it up. C- certainly on you, you're like, I wish I was there earlier. All of these conversations would have been much easier. It, it also gives politicians the opportunity to say, say no to things rather than have to respond or say no to things that are already happening. I feel like that story has played out in like every big movement from ride sharing to Airbnb and and certainly a a topic we don't really need to dig into today, cryptocurrency that's playing out as we speak. But what do you think about that concept or how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, sooner is better to be engaging with policymakers. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you have to take their advice. Uh, (laughs) It means that you are a person that they know and trust such that, you know, if they're introducing legislation or looking to regulate your industry for the very first time, they have somebody to call and ask questions and understand the model better. And hopefully then that's an opportunity for you to weigh in as well. And it becomes more of a conversation rather than a black box that's seeking to regulate you when you've never met them before. So the idea is to open up, you know, a two-way conversation such that you can be a resource for that government as they're going through the process.
0: I love it, I love it. You've threaded the needle and I think that makes a lot of sense. And you can think some of these examples, say going back to crypto, you see bills that make no sense and people get up in arms and there's a lot of fervor and maybe if there was at least so- someone kind of whispering the whole time and you know, there's there's certainly people doing that work now but maybe more money effort and coordinated efforts. Let's talk about you, how did you get into this?
1: It's it's a good question. It's a question I ask myself uh, often. I think, you know, in order to understand how I got into this work, you have to understand what an obnoxiously stubborn like child I was growing up. I was convinced that my parents were like to be influenced and to be persuaded. And to some extent, I felt the same way about school. My senior year of high school, I remember our school principal scheduled our annual standardized tests, the state mandated standardized tests, the same week as our AP tests were scheduled, which I thought was totally unreasonable. So I found out that as a student, you can actually opt out of the state's standardized testing. So my AP friends and I actually walked out of the standardized tests. This was my first foray into uh staging a political demonstration (laughs) like
0: like dramatically walked walked out you know
1: dramatically in the sense that like there were news cameras there
0: um that's pretty dramatic
1: you could say so i guess depends yeah who you are um but you know moreover you can imagine the impact of the states of our school's state standardized test scores when the entire AP class chose to opt out. So the ramifications there, I think, um, were pretty wild and, you know, strained the relationship I had with the school principal already a bit a bit further.
0: I have a lot of questions about this. So, <laughs> first off, how did the news cameras get there, or like know this was going to happen? Did you have like a, a media strategy? Did you have a comms person? I had. Them off? I
1: had a media strategy. You know, I was very lucky to grow up with um, parents who were very politically active in their own communities mm. in different ways, and so I had watched, you know, through their experience how these things tend to play out. Whether it was like. Uh, a picket line because of a union demonstration or things like that. I remember as a child, like baking cookies to take them over to folks who were marching with signs in a, uh, in a picket line. So it was a lot of, you know, watching and then also being overly confident as many teenagers are that I could, you know, do the same thing in an effective way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you, when you answered I don't know how I got into this line of work. That was completely disingenuous. <laughs> it's, it seems fairly obvious. You know, it's
1: sort of my natural tendency to to push the envelope. And um, yeah, clearly. You know, I was I was editor in chief of my school newspaper in high school. I I dabbled in student government in college, and then after graduation, a natural next step for me at the beginning of my career was. I got a job at the ACLU assisting the incredibly amazing people there who were doing policy work Mm -hmm. and mostly for criminal justice and drug policy, actually, which is kind of an interesting full circle now in my career. But that was uh, really the first time that I was seeing, you know, what this was like in the professional world.
0: Well, I'm disappointed that you left out that you're – your books of superlative was most likely to be a government affairs professional. But yeah, let's talk about the ACLU. That's your first job. You've now entered your line of entered this line of work. What's your day-to-day like in, in advocating for effective drug policy and criminal justice?
1: So at the ACLU, you know, it's a nonprofit and it's essentially a political advocacy arm. And at the time these were the folks that were doing, you know, quote unquote, public policy work, it was issue advocacy based groups like the ACLU. And so I was filing papers and scheduling meetings and answering phones for some really brave policy directors who were taking on really important issues related to over incarceration in the state of California, I actually helped uh, work on the very first ballot initiative to legalize cannabis, a much uh, less well known Prop 19, which you, even you may not have heard of. Yeah,
0: back I, in, I haven't.
1: Back in 2010 was the first effort at um, passing legal cannabis in California. It failed miserably. So, you know, in a sense, the experience taught me to be um, a good loser, which is an important skill in this job as well. But it was such an inspiring place to get to kick off my
0: So this is a podcast focused on technology, regulatory strategy, something that you're deeply ingrained in. So let's talk about your transition into tech and kind of this new era of public policy and advocacy from within tech companies. What led you to joining Uber? And can you talk about the early days at that job and what you did?
1: Yeah, so because this idea of an in-house public affairs team was so new by the time some of these startups realized that they needed an in-house public affairs team they were pulling people from places like nonprofit advocacy arms or like government itself you know staffers or from lobbying firms because that's where these folks worked beforehand so when i started at uber i was the second public policy hire based in headquarters um, in San Francisco. And I think I had used the app maybe twice ever at that point in time. I remember when I started, there were about 500 people at the company, which I just thought was absolutely massive. We had just launched what was called UberX, which was a new model for them. The original Uber was a black car, which was a licensed form of transportation under the existing limousine regulations. So UberX was this crazy idea that even my parents couldn't wrap their heads around, that you could push a button on your phone, a car would arrive. But moreover, you would get in the car with a total stranger (laughs) that you didn't know that was driving their personal vehicle and that they would yeah. take you to where you were going to go. This was like the something that we were weren't even sure that people would want, really.
0: <laughs> it's fascinating to me that Uber was 500 people by the time UberX came out cuz a lot of people, probably most people weren't really using Uber until there was UberX, you know, that I, I was kind of vaguely aware of it before then, but even in San Francisco where getting a taxi is the world's biggest nightmare (laughs) in 2012. I'm definitely surprised that Uber was that large before then.
1: Yeah, I definitely had experienced in my young 20s moving to San Francisco, like standing on freezing cold street corners out in the sunset where my first apartment was, just waiting and waiting and waiting for a taxi (laughs) and calling them and calling them and calling them and just praying that they would come. Yeah, UberX was the the hot new thing for sure.
0: It started in the right city, let's just say, <laughs> to to really get that uh, product market fit for UberX because, yeah, it was a total nightmare. You know, your story or comment about your parents and not understanding getting into a car with a total stranger is, is funny because I spent a couple years taking casual carpool into the city from the East Bay where I live. And I don't know if that's like... I think that's like a more extreme version of getting into a random stranger's car. And when I would tell people about this in 2019, they would look at me <laughs> like like I was crazy. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. It's not that different from Uber, I guess. But, you know, I don't know. Anyway, Uber, they've got UberX. as uh, about 500 people, but you're only the second public policy hire. And presumably there's already a bunch of battles to be fighting. So what what are they? What are you jumping into?
1: So the task at that time was basically to legalize ride sharing across all 50 states at once as a campaign. So there were no regulations for ride sharing at this time, obviously, because ride sharing didn't exist before this. It was a totally new thing. There were regulations for taxi at the time, but we felt that this was very different than taxi for a number of reasons. And so, this was my first time working on what we now call model legislation, which is that the company drafts a bill, which is how they would ideally like to be regulated. And we called it TNCs, which is an acronym that we now know as Transportation Network Companies. And in the model legislation, we essentially hoped to codify all the business practices that we already did, you know, the background checks for the drivers that that were performed, the insurance policies that we already provided to the drivers and the riders, the inspections that uh, our ops folks would do on the ground. And the goal was to take that model legislation and pass it into law to legalize ride sharing all the way across the country. My role was to do that all along the West Coast. But you have to realize Some cities felt very strongly that we should fall under their existing taxi regulations. One of those was Portland, which was a really good example of the push and pull between the business team, the policy team, and the legal team, which we all see now in a variety of different companies.
0: Before we get to Portland, I guess I have a question. The business has all of these things in place that you mentioned, background checks, safety checks, various regulatory frameworks in in that you're you're regulating we're regulating ourselves before we get regulated. Were any of the earlier policy folks involved in creating those things? Internally, I mean. Is there an internal strategy around, hey, we're doing this thing, or we've decided, hey, we're not regulated, we don't fall under these regulations? But before we start going out there, let's shore things up internally and go about all the ways that we're safe so that when we want to put out these model rules and suggest how we should be regulated, it's it's favorable.
1: Yeah. So a big part of my role and a big part of what my work still is was engaging with the business side to say, hey, what can we live with in order to make sure that we can grow as quickly as possible, but also such that we can demonstrate to policymakers that We are thinking about safety first. We are thinking about the same things that you care about first and being able to express that to policymakers ahead of time. Uh, It was really important to make sure that we were aligned with the business. The worst thing that could possibly happen is that we could go to a policymaker and offer up a way that we wanted to be regulated, that the business team Wasn't aligned with because then suddenly the operations team on the ground in any one of these given states would have to entirely redo the way that they're running the business at the time. But when it comes to how quickly do you engage versus launch, this is sort of the tale as old as time. I think that so long as you are engaging actively at the same time that perhaps you are moving closer toward business launch in a city that's the best way to do it but it's really a case-by-case situation so for example portland was one of the last remaining big cities that we hadn't yet launched a year in we had launched and passed legislation all over the country portland was digging its heels into the ground and we still hadn't launched the city said to us please wait to launch until we can update our taxi rules to include ride sharing. And we had meetings after meetings after meetings with the mayor and city council, encouraging them to move to begin the rulemaking process for ride sharing. I was practically living in a Portland hotel at this point. Shout out to Hotel Deluxe in the Pearl District. Great room (laughs) service also. But the city kept saying, we'll get around to it, right? They weren't necessarily incentivized to go do all this new work to draft an ordinance and begin a really challenging rulemaking process. So, you know, we had to make a decision a year into having those conversations. Are we going to wait to launch or do we need to go ahead and move forward?
0: That's super interesting coming to that decision point. So tell us, how did how did that story play out?
1: Well, finally, after a year of this and you know, me coming back to the business team empty-handed after all of my hard work lobbying the city, (laughs) the business team said, We gotta launch. We can't wait any longer. The demand is too high. And you ask, how do we even know what the demand is in a city where we haven't launched yet? There was this tool called Eyeballs where you could on the back end, see how many people in a given city were opening the app to check and see if it was available in their city. So we could see that every day there were thousands and thousands of what we called eyeballs in Portland on the Uber app, but they just couldn't request a ride. So the demand was there. We knew that for sure. And so, you know, the decision was made. That was my job to represent the business we were launching. And I still remember telling my lobbyists that this was the plan, then just the color just completely drained from (laughs) their faces. We were launching and in order to advertise to writers, you know, to make sure that we had customers on day one, we needed a way to announce that we were launching. So we came up with this plan a couple of days before launch to give an exclusive to a reporter under what is called embargo. This is kind of a communications term, which means that the, you are sharing the news with the reporter uh, on the agreement that they will not share the news until a particular time, which for us, the day we had agreed upon was the morning of launch, that they would um, announce that this was the day. So it was under embargo. Immediately after we had made that agreement with the reporter, got off the phone, the reporter hangs up with us, picks up the phone and calls the mayor of Portland (laughs) to ask for comment. How do you feel that Uber says they're going to be launching within a matter of days? The mayor then called us. And I believe his exact words were, if you launch your services here in our city this week, we will throw the book at you. (laughs)
0: did did he actually say throw the book at you it's so like old time. they didn't
1: say throw the smartphone or throw like the ipad tablet (laughs) throw
0: throw the book at you is so like i don't know 90s courtroom drama type thing you know i don't
1: know also if you've ever watched portlandia the tv show you know you understand the quirkiness here which was pretty accurate
0: in this the 1890s are alive in portland yes fair enough Okay. So okay. Mayor says he's throwing the book at you. And knowing Uber as I do, I, I I bet I can guess what happened next, but tell us.
1: Well, so at this point, when I got that call from the mayor, the operations team had already prepared thousands of drivers to ready to go live the following day. So that was the decision that we were up against when I went to bring this conversation to them. It was like, well. We're ready to go. We've trained and onboarded thousands and thousands of drivers, which as you can imagine is no small operational undertaking in a city like this. So, you know, the question was, should we pull the plug? And spoiler alert, as you indicated, (laughs) you know, this is a good example of, of course, I pick up, I call our in-house legal team. Right. I, I think I know what's gonna happen politically, which is not good, but legally, you know, what's gonna what what's gonna happen here, you know? Are our, our drivers gonna be arrested? Cause that's mm-hmm. a big concern that yeah. we we wanted to make sure we weren't putting drivers in harm's way in any sense. And our legal team maintained their position that they had all along, which is we were not taxi. We could not be regulated by taxi rules because we were not taxi. Regulations did not exist for the model that we were seeking to launch in the city. So I took that back to the operations team. I remember everybody gathered in my hotel room, engineers, ops people were like sprawled across the floor with our laptops and they pushed the go button. And we watched uh, on the back end. It was called God View, where you can see <laughs> basically a city yeah. light up as thousands of drivers suddenly go live across the city. You're seeing, you're watching this from your laptop. Boom, 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 boom. Little little golden dots all around the city as drivers went live for the first time. Within hours, local law enforcement were requesting ubers the next morning i woke up to a cease and desist letter from the mayor <laughs> of portland
0: a good old a good old C and i have uh i've sent a few i've received many love a good C and D. special place well in my i heart.
1: had not though so this is where you and i were different i <laughs> i thought that a cease and desist letter was the my career ending
0: before <laughs> my
1: eyes so i was you know in the fetal position rocking back and forth on the floor of my hotel room Mm -hmm. at this time thinking that you know truly my life was over
0: yeah you know it's like anyone can send a a c and c and d like obviously when the mayor of portland sends it there's probably you know more heft behind it than some of the ones i've received you know they're like on a spectrum i've i've gotten a lot from like random law firms that you know you can just kind of Crumple up and throw in the trash. <laughs> yours, yours. I will say it was probably much more meaningful. I, I love the, you know, like obviously, like Godview is a well chronicued, chronicled Uber tool. You mentioned, eyeballs. It's the first time hearing of that one. What I, what I'm most interested in is, uh, Uber has like a lot of internal tools with little funny names. Like just off the top of my head, I can name like Ripley, Gray Ball. Who's coming up with all these names? <laughs> it wasn't
1: me. they should have they should have, of course, asked their communications professional <laughs> yeah, for some exactly. advice on this. But you have to remember, at the time, we never thought that anybody but us would be hearing these words. Mm. It actually feels a little uncomfortable to even be saying them out loud here. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has you know, past on what I can share about my, my former employers. And, you know, at this point now there are books, there's a freaking. Showtime (laughs) show coming out We're going to talk about that. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, I think that's the thing about these tools is that you don't ever think that these words will be repeated outside Mm. of, you know, a hotel room in, in Portland and, and here we are.
0: Okay. So before we leave Uber, actually, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt Showtime show, Super Pumped. I think it's like, I think it's coming out this weekend. Who's playing the Caitlin O'Neill public policy part (laughs) and uh, uh, either in the show or in your head?
1: That's such a good question. I don't know that I can like pick an actor specifically. First of all, I'm not represented in the show as far as I'm aware (laughs) at least nobody called me (laughs) however it was very interesting to watch the trailer that was released and be able to identify moments where I was like yep I was in that room I mean it looked a little different than the set but I remember remember being in that room um there's a moment in the trailer actually where you know an engineer looks at his team and says is this even legal and that reminded me of the room that I just shared with you the moment when yeah, we had, yeah. you know, law enforcement requesting Uber rides for the first time. But I think that, you know, if, if there were to be a character of me at that point in time, it would be somebody very young and naive <laughs> because <laughs> that, you know, I think that's what I loved so much about my role at Uber is that I was given so much trust and confidence to just go make something happen probably before I was entirely qualified to do so. But this was sort of how I fell in love with startups and the idea that there's something impossible in front of you. You've never, you know, attempted to work on it before, but someone will say to you, you got this, go figure it out and you can fail and then you can try again.
0: Indeed. Indeed. That that's the beauty of working at startups and, young growing companies it's the opportunities that you can be afforded um you know kind of earlier than normal you know when i joined ease i was hired for a job that i basically (laughs) never did and uh yeah other things came up and and that's always you know it's just always very fun and, and excited at working at tech companies and startups we'll keep an eye out for the caitlin character in super pumped it's created by the creator of billions so you know if if, if i know billions there's going to be a lot of like references in this show to real things and pop culture things and i would bet all of my money that someone from like uber's cat table or board like the real life person will be in this show and make like a a random candy cameo that only tech people would even recognize. That's like a, a billion's specialty with like Goldman Sachs cameos and stuff. Like they'll be like, hi. Uh, so yeah, look out for that.
1: Well, I, I'm most excited to see, uh, Uma Thurman play Ariana Huffington. I think that will be oh, a yeah. fascinating, we'll see how she gets the accent down.
0: Uh, I love Uma. So, uh, so maybe that'll be great or a delightful disaster either way. You know, so you did leave Uber, and you you went to a company called Sonder, which is, um, if I recall, they are it's like an Airbnb <laughs> type type situation, share sharing economy. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. So then you ended up at Ease, where we met in late 2018, a wondrous time for sure, in a in a wonderful WeWork where where you didn't work, but we met in WeWork, and what attracted you. Ease and can you talk about the differences between there and entering the cannabis industry?
1: I, I think after my Uber journey, I loved the thrill of the startup life, as I mentioned, but I was really seeking a way that I could pair it with the passion that I've always had for social justice issues, which is the way that my career started out. And, you know, ease and working in the cannabis industry at that time seemed like the perfect fit because cannabis was a social justice issue and ease was a tech company. They were delivering cannabis. If you thought that it was controversial to deliver people at a company like Uber or Lyft, (laughs) let's just throw some weed in the car and just really spice things up here. You know, let's see what we can, what we can make happen. And so I joined the ease team, alongside some of my former ride-sharing friends. David Mack, who led the public affairs team at Ease, was a former Lyft public affairs director at the same time that we were in the trenches together at Uber. So here is a great lesson for everybody. In this field, you will always cross paths again with your former, you know, competitors or frenemies or even enemies. And so it's important to always be asking yourself, you know, when you're in a battle, how do you want to be remembered? Because there will be another time that you'll cross paths and those, that those relationships will be important. So I was thrilled to join a team of people that I had already really respected.
0: So you joined Uber and there was a specific slate of, of, of things for you to do. What, What was kind of the task at hand at EASE?
1: Well, when I first joined EASE, California was drafting regulations for legal cannabis for the very first time. So, our task was to ensure that delivery was included in that model because that was sort of an afterthought for the state. There's a lot to think about when you're creating a a legal cannabis market for the first time. So, once we were successful in including the delivery model in the California regulations. And then, you know, the Ease brand became very established across the state. There was still a new legislative fight every single day. So that's a lesson there for companies. It's not necessarily just about legalizing the thing and, you know, regulating your model in the first place. It's about defending it ongoing. So we saw new fights constantly. Sometimes it was because of stigma related to cannabis, which, crazy to say, in our little San Francisco bubble here, but still exists very much across this state and across the country more broadly. And sometimes those legislative fights were because of other anti-competitive players in the market that didn't want to see delivery grow. And most people don't know that even though we have legal cannabis in California, cities still have complete local control over whether or not they want to allow it in their local jurisdiction. So even today, over 75% of localities still have bans on commercial cannabis. There's these big swaths of California that we call cannabis deserts. And the people who live in a cannabis desert basically have two options. They can either get delivery from another city nearby and have it delivered into their city, or they can get it on the illicit market, which is still thriving and is frankly, delivers very quickly as well, oftentimes faster than ease.
0: You have this, this immediate task of making sure that delivery is within the regulations, and then you have this ongoing fight, not just because of the regulators, but, you have there's you have there's like a version of Caitlin at the retail store trying to get delivery like curtailed or banned or something like that can can you compare that to the situation of Lyft versus Uber those companies are competing but they're competing on the same footing and so you're probably a lot more collaborative with the regulators and did you experience it that way
1: That's such a good question. I think what was so interesting and different about the cannabis fight versus the ride-sharing fight is that even though the cannabis legal industry was brand new in the same way that ride-sharing was brand new, cannabis itself is not new. It's in fact, one of the oldest industries of our time. And so Although we were, we were arguing to legalize a new model of delivery, we were up against a pre-existing industry. Perhaps it wasn't licensed at the time, but it was big and powerful and had a massive customer base and strong opinions about what the legal industry should look like. And so, you know, there were even at the time advocates who opposed legalization in the first place, because of the damage it could potentially do to the existing industry.
0: Yeah, it seems clear that that dichotomy is going to continue to play out. And in my nearly four years in working in cannabis, there was always this idea that we were on the precipice of of you know legalization. Federal legalization is it's coming. It's inevitable. It's around the corner, and you know whenever someone outside the industry would would talk to me about it and ask me and and I have my view and I'd love your view it, <laughs> it it does not seem around the corner to me because there's it takes so much more than just people wanting it like the majority of people wanting it we've had for quite a while people for legalization but then you get into the actual political structure of the issues and the issues around how it's going to be legalized and it's, it's going to be legalized in a way that certain people don't like for very justif- justifiable reasons um, or, and may even oppose that legalization framework. And so it affects how it's going to come about. And I don't know if you have takes on this.
1: Yeah. One of my great disappointments about my time in the cannabis industry is that I was never able to see the broad industry really get aligned on what legalization should look like in a given place. And one of my main lessons from my time in ride sharing was really about how important it is to work collaboratively with your competition. I mean, you look back at ride sharing, I think there's no greater business competition, at least in our time than Uber and Lyft. I mean, it was highly publicized the Mm -hmm. great lengths to which these two companies went to screw each other over (laughs) in a business capacity. But Lyft came to the table, for example, in Portland, once the rulemaking process finally began, they showed up to go to work. And I started off kind of side eyeing them, you know, but ultimately it was so helpful to have another stakeholder echoing support for the same legislation. The Uber team will tell you that we took all of the risks and bore all of the pain for opening the market such that other players could enter the market as well. The Lyft team will tell you that their better reputation allowed things to finally get over the finish line. And both of them are, are right. It required everybody to align on a single piece of regulation and then bring their different components that they had skill sets in, in order to accomplish something. And so my hope in the cannabis industry is that working collaboratively, even when there is a massive business competition, is something that's actually good for public policy and necessary long term.
0: There's, we'll see, there's so so many hurdles to get through. And even if the cannabis industry is able to achieve that industry alignment then there's several other questions that that are beyond that the discussion of how social justice uh ties in to cannabis legalization and that will surely be you know a sticking point for many as well as it should be for a lot of advocates and and we'll see how that plays out
1: yeah and most. Importantly for the cannabis industry really is that we had to recognize as newer players in the industry that we stand on the shoulders of giants that come before us, advocates in the illegal space that really were the whole reason that we saw legalization happen in the first place such that we could you know play in the same sandbox. And so there's a massive, massive amount of respect that is owed to the folks who have been doing that work decades and decades and decades before we could even start to enter the conversation.
0: Absolutely, and a debt to the many people still today still incarcerated for cannabis-related crimes, things that people do every day on the street, out in the open.
1: We have a long way to go still. I I think the number at this point is that over uh, 40,000 Americans are still incarcerated for cannabis-related offenses.
0: Yeah. Um, Not great. Well, (laughs) I, I, I don't have the best segue from that, but you and I are both no longer at ease, and you have moved into the great, wonderful world of Being on the outside, you're at Strategies 360 doing the old school consulting work. Can you talk about that transition and how that's different for you as a longtime in house advocate?
1: Yeah, I think technically, you know, unfortunately, this makes me a lobbyist now, which has such a (laughs) stigma associated with it. But the reason that I joined Strategies 360 is that they really consider themselves to be a public affairs firm that thinks about this work as a wraparound. Campaign in the way that many uh, in-house teams are thinking about it as well. So we work with you know everyone from very young startups uh, and also very established big companies to help them build their relationships with policymakers and with third-party stakeholders, with the media, and you know with the public generally to make sure that their reputation and that. Public policy is a force for their growth instead of just something to be, you know, dodging constantly.
0: Are there any types of clients that you are looking for or are, are best working with? Who should be using strategies 360?
1: Well, one of the reasons I decided to transition into consulting was that there were so many interesting companies and new industries out there that I couldn't fathom just picking one to work on at this point in time. And my favorite type of client to work with is a new emerging industry that is having challenges describing to governments exactly what it is that they do and why it's a benefit to uh, the community that the policymaker represents. So I've been a client myself to firms like this for so long. Many times, I think a tough or a challenging client previously. So now as a consultant, the relationships I've built with policymakers are a really important resource to my clients. But I think moreover, I've been in the shoes of my clients working in these, sorts of businesses. So I understand the pressures that they are under. I understand how quickly business moves and, you know, compared to how slow government moves. And folks are thinking about public affairs work now at the very early startup phase in the beginning as they should be. So I feel very fortunate that I've been a part of some of these really, you know, first in-house Models for this, and I want to help others be able to replicate it.
0: Amazing, I like that. It, it's easy to compare, you know, to the big law in-house dichotomy often discussed on this podcast, and that generally, not all the time, but but generally, it goes in one direction from the from the firm to in-house, and you settle in this like more comfortable, uh, fulfilling life. Obviously, the nature of this is a bit different, but. It's interesting to look at the reversal um but i'm excited for you getting to dabble in different new industries and of course i gotta ask where are you with crypto and (laughs) it it seems right for your talents
1: Crypto is is and will continue to be one of the most interesting new emerging markets that exist in, a, in the regulatory space. I think it will also continue to be a challenge for policymakers to understand. And so that's why it's so important to be thinking early on as a company in crypto or any other space, how do we want to demonstrate our benefits to policymakers. You know, I, one of the biggest misunderstandings that folks uh, on the business side of things have is that they think that perhaps somebody inside government will just do a favor for a corporation or regulate something in the way that a company wants just because they asked for it that way. And that's really not the case. You have to be able to build a Story for how your product is influencing and impacting positively the communities that these policymakers represent. A a local government or a state government or a federal government is not going to do a favor for a corporation. But what they do care about is that they have voters and constituents that they were elected to represent. So, this is why it's very important as well to have a community affairs strategy to create advocates who are impacted who are hopefully constituents of the policymakers that are making these decisions and can help tell that yeah. story.
0: In the in the crypto industry, you know, we hadn't had a ton of that. Certainly there had been players doing that for years, but, you know, I would say it's quite small in scale in comparison to the side of the industry and the value of the industry. And certainly in the last year, two years, There's been much more of the things that you're talking about, community organizing, progress with regulators. We've seen a lot more of those efforts and them be successful and and, and engaging. But going back to your advice earlier in this podcast, engaging earlier probably would have been more helpful, but probably uh, better late than ever. Um, So for you, Caitlin, you kind of ducked my question, but (laughs) uh, I'm happy to guide you down the rabbit hole uh, whenever you're ready
1: please do. I think so my goal now in this role, as you just mentioned, better late than never is exactly right. I think better late than never for crypto, but really for anyone. The, I want to help folks learn from my mistakes of not engaging as quickly as I should have before. There's, there's an advantage I think I have to having worked with companies facing big reputational challenges in the past, because the lessons I've taken away from it is how important it is to be engaging early and often. So I'm really excited to see the crypto industry moving closer to that now, and I think they'll continue to do the right thing.
0: Lessons that I think we can take away from this is that you've led an interesting and successful career and done some amazing work. I think we can take away the value of advocacy, even for like a solar technology company and how important campaigning and education is for any company building in an emerging regulatory environment or regulated industry. And uh, another lesson that we've learned is that this was a very successful episode of the If Done podcast. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining. Always love to chat and getting to learn more about policy and government affairs. Where can people who might need advocacy work, get in touch with you.
1: I love supporting folks in this space. You can find me at Caitlin O at strategies360.com. And our next podcast episode together, David, I hope will be a live watching of some Showtime series together. (laughs) We can can give all of our commentary to your listeners.
0: Absolutely. And- you know, maybe we can get Brian Koppelman to do the the Ease story, uh, especially since he literally, like, rip an episode of Billions from, like, some some, exactly. some of Ease's more unfortunate uh, storylines not too long ago. But that's another episode. Fantastic stuff, Caitlin. Thanks so much for joining. This has been another episode of the If Then podcast. If you are interested in partnering with If Then or joining the If Then community, you can reach out to me at david.ifthen.vc. At Otherwise, do interesting work that you're interested in. Thanks, everyone.